Coming from the McDowell Heating and Air Studio, welcome to the True Crime Mamas podcast. We are a not-for-profit organization dedicated to shedding light on the many tragic homicide and missing person cases across North Carolina. We strive to honor victims and their loved ones by honestly and non-sensationally sharing their stories. Hey, True Crime Mamas and friends, this is Christina. And this is Amber. And today um, we're here to talk about a cold case. And before we jump into the cold case, we're going to um, let you guys listen to a conversation that we had with Nate Thompson from the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. He is the special agent in charge of the cold case division. And we're going to talk through some upcoming initiatives for them, as well as start talking about the cold case we're going to dive into later. That was such an interesting conversation with him. I really enjoyed this. I really did too. And I just love how innovative he is. I mean, the things that he's doing to really start making people think about cold cases and to uncover more information. We can't wait for you guys to hear, but Amber, I don't know about you. I was kind of blown away. Oh, I was absolutely blown away. It was such good information. Like you said, he was so innovative with the things that they're doing for cold cases now. Well, let's go ahead and dive in. All right. Okay, so um, first of all, thank you so much, um, Nate, for coming on with us. And um, we're here today with Nate Thompson from the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation Cold Case Unit. And we're here to talk today a little bit more about what the Cold Case Unit does. We have um, been fortunate to talk with this group in the past, but there's some new exciting things coming up that we wanted to make sure that everyone here was aware of. So we'll go ahead and kick some things off. Um, Nate, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much. Um, it's um, me and Amber here. So you're going to be going to the General Assembly and asking um, of them of some things. Could you um, give us a little bit more detail around that? Uh, yeah. So right now uh, we have a cold case unit. Um, it's really consists of officially myself, one other person that is a full-time employee under me. And then I have two um, and possibly a third retired SBI agent coming on board. I have two currently. And we're the ones that review the cold cases for the state, for the SBI, uh, and uh, do the cold case work for the SBI. Now, I do have agents in different districts throughout the state. We have eight different districts that also work cold cases, but it's not their primary uh, uh, duty assignment. So the cold case would be their collateral duty. And what um, does that mean, collateral duty? So in the SBI, uh, you, you know, you're an agent assigned to a county or an assignment, like a drug agent or a criminal agent. And we have collateral duties where you could, uh, let's say, be on the SWAT team also, or be on the bomb squad, or work, um, some type of uh, like trying to think of another collateral duty, fly drones. Um, And one of the collateral duties you can work is cold cases, help review cold cases. 
And so we, I have five of those throughout the state. Um, I've had, I had a couple more when I first joined in uh, last year, but those two have since retired. <laughs> um, and so um, they work it when they're able to, and they're supposed to be left alone a little bit to help work on cold cases. But, you know, sometimes new cases come in and uh, they take priority. And so when we go to the general assembly, what we're asking for is funding for positions so that we can have full-time assignments to the cold case assignment and not it, it not be a collateral duty. And so, so I've, go ahead. I was just wondering how many um, cold cases are being worked on right now by your unit? Um, I would say about a, a dozen maybe. Uh, and, and they're in different stages of uh, work. Uh, so some are forensic genealogy cases where we're trying to d- conduct genealogy to find the suspect or they're unidentified cases. We're trying to submit uh, unidentified human remains to be identified through genealogy or DNA. Uh, and then some are straight up cases that we are there's after reviewing the case had a lot of holes in the case and we're trying to clean it up to make a hopefully a successful prosecution at least a probable cause to make an arrest uh, and then a successful prosecution so we're working a couple of those two of those um, one of the initiatives we have that I'm I'm very excited about and it just happened yesterday we have a partnership with universities in the state uh, with the criminal justice program and so what we do is, uh, and it help us go through these cases, we partnered with, uh, originally with East Carolina University, it's a graduate level program. And there's six students that I give them a true cold case, along with the local agency's case file, with their crime scene pictures and all. I said, here, study this case file for three, four months, however long the semester is. Tell me where the holes are. Tell me who the suspect is. Give me your advice. And then that, that, all those leads are actually followed up on by investigators. They they sign a non-disclosure and uh, I'm super excited about it. So when I came on last June, we were just doing ECU and I expanded it to Campbell University, St. Augustine University and NC State will be starting in the fall. And and I'm, it's so exciting. Yesterday, at the end of the semester, the students stand up and give a presentation to myself and the local detective who has the most knowledge of the case and says, Hey, look, this is the lead. These are, these are the people that need to be re in. And, uh, um, and it, it, it's just, a, it's an awesome partnership. It's free labor, but they get so much out of it. Um, it's a recruitment tool for us or law enforcement. And who knows when maybe we solve the case out of it also. And, and it, it helps us. If I have four or five schools reviewing cold case, that's four or five cases that can be reviewed in a year when the, you know, the three or four of us wouldn't be able to do it. So um, one other idea, um, and I mean sort of in jest, and also maybe a little seriously, you could get all of us true crime mamas, and we would do it for free. And you could just give us wine, and we would just... <laughs> it's funny you say that, because um, we didn't get the idea from Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department, but our director is uh, retired from, he was a retired deputy chief or something, Charlotte Mecklenburg. And their cold case unit has a citizen review board where they get, uh, and I think it's on their website where you could go on and I think they have like 
an engineer, a pilot, and like some retired FBI guy. And like they, I don't know how often they get together and review cases, but they do a citizen review board. And it's really, um, I'm not, I'm not objective to it at all. <laughs> I mean, uh, we have cases, you know, hundreds of cases to go through and it wouldn't hurt. The, these, case, these, these classes that these students are taking is a cold case homicide investigation class. And so it's a text. We have the text that the, 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 um, the book that these professors use, and it goes through all the new technology of what can be reexamined and what to look, like, look at. And uh, we give them the whole case file, the whole kit and caboodle, handwritten notes and everything. And they said, I think Campbell students yesterday said, man, we wish we had all year to do a deep dive into this because the semester just flew by so fast that we felt like we still may be missing something. And um, it's just, uh, I mean, it, it's an incredible experience to see them because they get so much out of it and they, they want another case. St. Aug students said, um, we want to come back next semester and take the class again, but we're graduating. Oh, <laughs> it, was, no. <laughs> so it was, it was, uh, they love it. And I, you know, ECU is doing a class, their, their classes to the summertime in NC State for the fall. And I'll do Campbell again in the spring and St. Aug's again in the fall. So I can expand it to another school. I mean, I have schools now calling me saying, we want to do this. I, it, it's a full-time gig just to <clears throat> find cases that are good enough that they're going to get something out of it that we could possibly get something out of it as like, I have to make sure the evidence is all there and that we get all the case file pieces together and give them everything. Cause a lot of local agencies don't have their files digitized. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's sitting like four, uh, four, three ring binders on a desk somewhere and no one's looking at it and, uh, or it's in a box and to get them to PDF the whole case files. Like I call them months ahead of time. I say, all right, start copying it now because the school wants it. They want to start looking at it. What an incredible opportunity just all around. I can't even imagine the benefits just going all the way across the board and just the satisfaction as a student knowing that you're doing something to really make an impact on your community. That right. is incredible. That is amazing. Yeah. I really want to go audit a class like this. I think I would get so much out of it. I mean, we love investigative techniques. I mean, we go way deep, deeper than we probably should in some cases. And we're still wanting more because once you start learning and once you really think about the human nature of things and who you're impacting, it becomes more than just this mystery. It really is about helping people. And right. that's so incredible that you have this whole line of people who want to help your efforts. Yes, yes. In the cases I gave the last two colleges, they were from the case files from 82 and 84. And all these students were born in 99, 2000. I mean, these are, you know, these are kids, but they're studying it like, hey, why wouldn't this person interview? And I said, well, they might have been interviewed, but the investigative technique back then, if someone didn't really give you any good information, generally they didn't write it up. Nowadays, law enforcement writes everything up, whether it's negative or not. And, uh, it's just, but man, they, they really take a deep dive and they love it. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. That is amazing. I would love to do something like that. Yeah, we can talk about it. And then you can, uh, I mean, I could give you like uh, you know, the type of paper that, oh, I guess it's a report that they write up, which is basically a case summary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They do a victimology uh, and a suspect profile, uh, if you will. And then uh, 
holes in the investigation, the list of evidence and what needs to be reexamined. And if there's any previous examination, what were the results of that? And then how would you, you know, what, what needs to be done to reexamine the evidence? And then, uh, you know, what would you do from then on? You know, it's, it's really, uh, it's really, it's really kind of neat. Like I, I was so impressed when I first came on episode like for a um a series for us to do like yes. if you'd ever be yeah. willing to let us do yes. that that would be really interesting for us to do with the entire listening community and um, obviously the nda stuff would stay with us but yes. um just to kind of walk them through what that might look like that that could be super interesting and, and the, the professors at campbell and at st alds are retired sbi agents so that's why one of the reasons why i reached out to them i was like this is a no-brainer um, I'm going to reach out to them. They teach the class and then it's, um, you know, that, that they're big fans of. And, and I want to, I want to expand it to probably at least six schools, but it would be all I did. I mean, if I'd like to do a class, I mean, a, a case each semester and at, at times six, you know what I mean? Or, or two, and that's a full-time gig picking up that, make sure that they get everything and, Coordinate with the detective to make sure he gets there. And uh, that made Wake, uh, Wake County Sheriff's Office came yesterday on one of the cases and he, they were excited about it. Like it's a bullet point. Here's what needs to be done to clean up this case. Will it solve it? Who knows? But here's what needs to be done. And it's so much easier for you to go back to some detectives at, at your unit and say, all right, here, go out and interview so and so. Is this so and so still alive? Like without having to look at a box of a bunch of reports. It's almost laid out for you. That's amazing. Well, it's amazing that it's just a little bit of cleanup work too, because I mean, you would think that there was this huge, like, I guess, discovery that would need to happen. And if it's really just a bullet point and it could clear something up, I mean, that's incredible to think of how it could just close some things out for people and let them have closure. And we, we definitely, we upload the, their report goes into the case file and their notes go into the case file. So they are, they know going in it that they are subject to being subpoenaed and, um, may have to testify if anything comes up and they're all for it. But um, so it, we don't, we don't keep it from the case file. It definitely adds to the case file. So it kind of holds the agencies accountable. Like here's your leads. You know, why didn't you follow up on it? So. Well, technically I'm a, I'm a student. So if you ever need my help. And <laughs> <laughs> we're like chomping at the bit. What can we do? Uh, yeah. <laughs> So Amber, I'll let you jump into the next question. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, I, this is probably a question. I don't know if you know the answer or not, but since the cold case division has been formed, do you know how many cases have been investigated? Ooh, I keep quarterly stats on that. And I would have to look on my computer. Um, it's hard to say. Um, we review cases and we're talking cases from the 50s and 60s all the way up to 2018. And we have about 800. When I came on in 2021, June of 2021, we had 1,040. Okay, wow. so we're going through them and we're calling local agencies because it's a joint investigation back, you know, whenever we get called in. Um, and we... We call them ultimately and say, hey, do you have the physical evidence in this case? Because all these are marked inactive homicides. And we have a coding in our system that we can code leads exhausted. And so what we're doing, if, if there's a case out there with no physical evidence, for some reason, it's just missing. 
um, we are recoding that leads exhausted because it's going to be very hard to prosecute. And we don't want to do a deep dive. I don't want to give it to a school. I don't want to give it to one of our retired agents if there's no physical evidence to be reexamined or period. And a lot of those um, cases, I could think of some sheriff's offices during the, in the 80s and uh, you know, on the coast, they, there was a flood, a hurricane, and it destroyed their evidence room. Uh, I'm giving them my case file because they don't even have case files from the 80s. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. There was a county, and I won't say in the eastern part of the state, that doesn't have any evidence in any case in the 80s. If you were killed, raped, or anything else in the 80s, they just don't have it. Wow. So you're talking about, that's a big chunk of cases. Yeah. Um, or there was a flood, or I think there was one out your way. I think it was Thomasville. I don't want to say the agency name, but they had an evidence storage barn where they kept older evidence. Well, it caught fire. Oh, no. And there was a rape murder case that I was reviewing, and I called them and said, hey, do you have the evidence? And they said, well, that was, we did have it, but our evidence barn caught fire, and it killed, it basically burned all the evidence. So there's situations like that that aren't the agency's fault. It's just we didn't have evidence retention demands back then as we do now. Uh, the way we store evidence now is a lot better. Um, it, so to set, to answer your question even longer, I mean, we're going through them. If there's evidence present, then we are marking it up for a review, for a deeper dive, uh, whether it be a university, whether it be one of our people. Um, and then there's just flat ones that we know that there's leads in by talking to the local agencies that we dive into also. Um, so they just kind of, we review them all every month and we're closing out. Some are fires that originally thought were arson, but they didn't find in, you know, there might've been a deceased in the building, but they were a heavy smoker or they had a high alcohol content and there was no sign of, in, you know, uh, arson. You know, we're closing those out. Um, if, if there's no, sign of you know intent to set a fire it's just really um every case is different I mean, you got to go through each one and we're going through them i mean i think we've done pretty good in a year's time to you know close out at least 100 that's um, incredible that were just, and these are older yeah. ones now. These, these are in the 70s 80s a lot of um highway patrol would call us back in the day and if there was a hit and run of an individual on the road well they never solved it because they never located anybody and there's no evidence, <laughs> you know, like how are you going to solve that case when there's no evidence and there's no, you know, no car, no suspect. <laughs> so um, one case that you gave us to um, take a look into was the case of Donald M Donna Emmel, who um, passed away in 1975. And one thing I think that was interesting about this case is where it ends up leading to but just out of curiosity, because I know it was investigated, I know that things kind of went a little bit cold. Why is it back on the radar again? Um, I know when I joined the unit, it, it was uh, being looked at as a potential case uh, because uh, the physical evidence was still present, um, even though it is such an old case. Um, it's being worked jointly with us and the NCIS, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service. So um, they have a cold case unit also. I think they were the first federal agency to have a cold case unit. Uh, 
<laughs> tidbit. Um, and so because it involved possible Marine suspects, and I think Emil's father might have been a Marine, um, NCIS has jurisdiction when it involves Marines and nor Navy people. So okay. people in the Navy. So and it was occurred near a Navy base. I mean, I'm sorry, Marine base. And so they've worked it from the beginning. Uh, Newport PD is a very small police department. Uh, nothing against them. Uh, they don't have the uh, private personnel to follow up on this case. Well, you know, and so when I came on, they were working leads and uh, a distant relative of Emil has been calling and pres- being persistent, rightfully so, and um, wanting to know what's what's happening with the case and make sure it's being worked. And it is. It's being uh, intensely looked at. It's. We have, um, in fact, just this week, we've sent out a lead to interview 15 people. I think we, there's a lot of holes in the case. So we, we're trying to uh, close those holes along with the physical evidence. Everything, all the physical evidence was sent to the, the I think it's called the Armed Services Laboratory in Georgia, where NCIS sends their laboratory stuff. And there's a CODIS profile in the case. Um, I don't know how public that is, but there is a CODIS profile in the case. Um, so we're trying to um, get standards from people that we're going to be interviewing this week and next. So if there's a CODIS profile, this would not be a known, like right now, unknown. Criminal. It's unknown. So um, just to fast forward our listeners just a little bit, um, there was some, um, I guess, speculation that somebody who was involved in the case was the person who actually was um, the person who did the crime in the show, Making a Murderer. Um, I don't know if everyone who are listeners are familiar with that, but um, he was the person who actually did the crime. But it sounds like that he probably couldn't be that individual if there's a CODIS profile because he's serving time right now. Um, Yeah, I don't know when he got locked up and I'm not sure the exact date of when people get locked up that they started taking DNA standards from okay. or, uh, convicted offenders. Um, and he might have been in prison prior to the uh, uh, collection of from uh, correct, I'm sorry, uh, convicted offenders. Um, there's numerous possible individuals that we are looking at, uh, but there were back then, you know, they, they didn't document as well as they do now. So when we're, look, we're reviewing the case file, we're like, well, why is this person not interviewed? Why is this person not interviewed? And it's not to say they weren't. It's just not written down. <laughs> and so we're going back. And and when you have a case this old, you almost need to go back and interview everybody to mm-hmm. see what they remember. You know, they, everybody's relationships change with each other. Uh, people that were friends may not be friends now. Uh, people's uh, may come off of information that they didn't want to back then. Um, so it's definitely a case worth revisiting. Um, those holes that you mentioned that, you know, that have been in the case and everything, is that, do you think that's why it wasn't solved earlier? Um, between that and technology. Yeah. Um, technology would have solved this case pretty quickly. I think in the beginning, um, in 1975, the means of collecting evidence then is totally different now. Um, it, it just, yeah. I mean, I think the advancements in technology would have sort of solved that case pretty quickly back then. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so the um, gentleman's name, by the way, was M. Gregory Allen that I was trying to recall, and it's right here in front of my face, which typical Friday, everybody. But mm-hmm. um, with it, it seems like that this was an area where there was a lot of um, transientness, where there were people coming in and out because of the Marine base. Um, also, it's probably really close to the 95 corridor, if I remember correctly. So there's just a lot of traffic in general. Um, do you think that maybe the person who actually did this is somebody who was not local to the area and someone just passing through? It's possible. It's uh, like you said, it's very close to uh, the Marine bases, there's two of them there right beside each other. I, always, I just call it the Marine base because really just there's two, but they're, uh, they're beside each other. And then uh, the beaches are there. It's right near the beach. It's a coastal community. Uh, and it's right on uh, Highway 70. It's not an interstate highway, but it's, it's definitely a, I don't know what it was in 1975. But I imagine it was right now it's a four lane divided highway. Uh, that goes directly to the beach. Mm. It's the main corridor from 95 to the beach. It's well-traveled for sure. Yes. Yes. And uh, we are in in the process of uh, getting the, I I forgot what county this happened in, Curry Tuck County, or I'm sorry, Carter, um, putting a billboard up uh, on on her her name on it and anybody that may remember anything. And it's going to be right there on, 70 highway. Those are really um, powerful. Whenever you see those billboards, it always recalls or helps people recall memories. So I think that's going to be a really good thing. Hopefully. So um, in specific, just a couple more specific questions about um, Donna. Um, I know that there were a lot of um, different holes. Things are being investigated now. I had read something about the possibility of exhuming her body. Is that something that is going to need to happen or at this point, not sure? At this point, not sure. Um, I I don't know that we would have to exhume her body for any particular reason. You would exhume her body to um, get her DNA Mm -hmm. or uh, maybe do another autopsy, which at this point is kind of, I mean, I think an autopsy was done in a determination that it was it was strangulation. Um, it's too early to say right now. Okay. And then um, the last question just around that case is, um, I know DNA has changed significantly since 1975. What levers do you think might be able to be pulled um, now, between now and 1975, I know things have changed so much, but what are those things that you think have changed so much to where it could be a game changer? I think um, DNA, just so you know, DNA has changed tremendously since 2015. So in 75, uh, and I think when they resubmitted the evidence, evidence in this case, it was 2016. Um, and that's when they came up with the profile and ev- DNA now. Um, is able to separate mixtures when it may not have been able to separate mixtures before or pick up DNA where it may not have picked it up before. Um, it's so much stronger technology now that it can. It's, I, I tell officers, if you submitted your, your homicide evidence prior to 2015, that it would, you need to resubmit it. It's changed that much since 2015. Wow. And, uh, and to stay up with, I mean, it, where you may not have gotten a profile, you'll get one now. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah that makes complete yeah. sense. That's incredible. I mean, just to think of what that can do. 
Yes. Okay. So we're going to be um, going deeper into Donna's case um, later on in this particular case. We want to talk a little bit more about her and just make sure our listeners know who she is and why we're talking and just our whole um, just call to the, if you know anything and we want you to reach out and everything. Um, But before we um, depart with you, um, is there anything that we should be talking about to make sure that we're doing everything we can? to publicize the mission of the SBI? Um, as far as the cold case stuff, um, no. Um, I'm trying to think of more on her case. We're going to do the billboard. Re- we're looking at the evidence. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of who would know the most about her case as far as someone that you could interview. The former police chief, I don't know how much he knows about it. Um, we have an agent working on it. NCIS is working on it. Um, and Newport is not really, um, I don't want to say they're not participating, but they're, they're not assisting with our interviews. Let's put it that way. And there's interviews all over the country. And so we flat gave it to NCIS and said, here, NCIS, since you have agents on virtually in every state, will you go? And they're, they're, they that got out last week, so they're probably doing them now and next week. So that that's really good for us. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of tracks down everything a lot quicker. And uh, but as far as uh, the SBI's cold case unit, there, there's another initiative that I I'm a big fan of, and it's a partnership we have with NC State and Dr. Ann Ross. Um, she is uh, phenomenal. If you just Google Dr. Ann Ross at NC State, she's um, a forensic anthropologist. And she holds the contract for the state of North Carolina from the Emmy's office. So when there's an unidentified that goes to the Emmy's office and they try to find a cause of death. And if they can determine that they, they, they will, if it gets identified, then it goes back to the family. But if they don't, none of that is answered. It comes to Dr. Ann Ross and she examines the bones and she does, I call them tool marks, but essentially weapon marks on the bones can tell you whether the bone has been sawed or cut with clippers or, you know, and she could tell you age and does uh, all kinds of uh, studies on the bones that she, she just asked me the other day about isotope uh, geolocation, which I wasn't really sure what that was. <laughs> and it's basically the study of the person's teeth um, and it can tell you based on the water they've been drinking, what region of the country they're from. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so she's like, yeah, you can tell like what region of the planet they're from based on, you know, what kind of life they've lived and all this stuff. And so it's really, uh, so having said that we're, I'm part of this North Carolina unidentified, the North Carolina unidentified project. I think it is. It's a new, uh, nonprofit that we're starting to basically raise money to do unidentified, to identify unidentified. And so what I partnered with NC State is they had some of these cases they were trying to work on, and half of them were SBI cases. I said, hey, uh, (laughs) these are like SBI cases. How about I pay for your private lab testing, where she sends it away for uh, DNA testing, and they have their own genealogist. So I said, how about I pay for your private lab testing if you do the genealogy? And so, so far, she's identified one from 81. And 
we're going to uh, put in the news next month the one we just identified from 1976 from Chatham County. He had, he was headless and had all his fingers cut off and he was weighted down in the Cape Fear River with a logging chain. Like this was a, an assassination, essentially. And we just identified him as a Vietnam veteran. Um, he had wounds from Vietnam where he'd come back like shrapnel in his body, but it wasn't, he was stabbed to death. And, um, Goodness. And so like we just identified his sisters in their 80s. He would have been 70 years old. <laughs> but uh like that's the kind of stuff. Like they don't have the money to send it off to Othram to pay three thousand dollars for a bone DNA extraction, and then for it to come back and the genealogist does her work. Um, so I said, "Hey, I will pay for your private lab testing and work our cases." And we'll. And so that's what we're doing. That is so, so innovative. It, yeah, it is. It is. And so she's she's all on board. She's uh, and if you want to start researching Dr. Rawls, she's on board for talking to you all. Oh, about it. Um, we will absolutely and, uh, do that. Yeah, <laughs> she's she's like it's called the Bone Doctor, essentially. Is um, and she's a real life. I mean, she's done extraordinary things, and uh, so I don't know how they raised money before I came along, but I think they would basically start a GoFundMe page and say, "Help, we want to identify, you know, these individuals and and." So that's one of the other initiatives we're doing. <laughs> well, that's incredible. We would love to talk to her. And what a great thing. I mean, we talked about this earlier, but just being able to impact people. And I mean, that's really why we do this because a lot of people are into true crime because of multiple reasons. We found right. that through our journey that it's really about helping people and those connections and making sure people have closure and just thinking about that someone can go and look at someone's bones and determine who they are and find them unity again. I mean, that that's incredible to me. That, right. That's it's, what this it, is all about. It, it basically okay. reopened a case because they didn't know who he was. And after talking to his sisters, like, well, he lived in Chatham County. He had a roommate. and We don't know where his roommate is. He had a car that I don't think has ever been found. And, um, you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of the questions now. <laughs> now, whether we'll be able to find the car or his roommate or where he used to live, that's a whole other issue. But um, you're talking yes, he's about. Found. Yes, he's been identified. And, you know, and um, his sisters said they just lost contact with him and never heard from him again. The guy from 81, he was from Baltimore, Maryland, and his family didn't even know why he was in Chatham County. He was also from Chatham County, in Chatham County. I have an 84 unidentified baby case we're currently trying to work where a baby was on discarded on the side of the road. Oh, oh my uh, goodness. And so we uh, had hair on the scalp, so there's a root ball, and we're trying to get the DNA from that. If not, we'll try to go for the bones. But, I mean, there's so many unidentifieds. Out. This is the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to the genealogy aspect of it because the DNA is in the bones and as long as it's not degraded, we can identify them through genealogy at a reasonable, reasonable rate as far as cost. And it doesn't take a whole lot of, you know, you may not be able to solve their case, but you can at least give their identity. back. And that's so important. It is. That's fascinating. I could spend hours just, to know everything. By the way, uh, this is a Walter is coming back. Yay! So uh, he 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 texted me last week and was like, "Hey, uh, you think you'll have me back on contract as a retired agent?" 
And I said, yeah. I said, why? He said, well, selling insurance is not what it's cracked up to be. <laughs> so I, I guess he was imagine selling insurance. him selling insurance. I know. No. Ew. So he's, like, <laughs> so he's going to come back. And uh, so I don't know when he will start, probably in the next month or two. Well, good. I'll then we'll all circle back with him on Jalisa too. So yes, we can get that yes. case going. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Well, I don't want to keep you um, for any more time. Um, we have some good things to work with here. And then um, what we'll do is we're going to circle back with you um, about Dr. Ross probably in about a month or so, just so okay. we can do that. I would love, um, Amber, I don't know if you want to do a field trip to NC State. It might be more sense for us just to go visit yeah. her instead of Absolutely. us trying to do a video call. She has a, she yeah. has a wonderful lab there that is in the coolest building. It's one of the oldest buildings on NC State's campus. And it's all brick, you know, on the walls and it's redone and it's all, and she's, she's got skeletons everywhere. <laughs> well, we're going to go to school, Amber. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with awesome. that. <laughs> well, Nate, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. And we'll be back in touch with you um, probably in a couple of weeks. Okay. Yes. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Bye. Bye-bye. Donna Emmel was 15 years old and enjoying the summer between her sophomore and junior year of high school. She was a petite blonde with sparkling light eyes and a very sweet smile. June 16th, 1975 was a typical summer day in Newport, North Carolina. That day, Donna went to hang out with friends at the popular Grice's Grill off of Highway 70 in Newport. The store had an arcade and pool tables, which made it attractive to both teenagers and service members from the nearby Cherry Point Marine Base. Around 8.30 that evening, Donna's mother called the grill and said it was time for Donna to head back home. So I'm wondering back in 1975 is if it was as hot in North Carolina as it is now, because all I'm thinking about was that was probably a great escape just to get out of the heat. It probably was. And I think that it, it was just as hot. I don't know if the humidity level, it was as bad back in the seventies as it is now, but I can imagine it was still just as hot, especially on the, the coastal area. Oh, I bet. So it was probably kind of nasty out there. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just trying to think like, you know, in the summertime and, you know, her cousin, which you guys will hear later and um, talked about how they played outside all the time. But I think there comes a certain point in your life um, where you transition from a kid where you don't care if it's hot to a grown up and all you can think about is it's hot. And I'm wondering when she was 15, it was just that point in time where I've got to get out of this heat. This is ridiculous. Yeah, I think that was probably the case. Yeah, well, Grice's sounded like it was a really unpopular place. I actually um, tried to find where it was, but it doesn't exist anymore. Um, so I was searching to see if there's anything, and it looks like that there might be a gas station in the place of it, but um, I couldn't find out what Grice's Grill looked like. So just somewhere okay. off of Highway 70. Okay. So Donna was seen leaving, going back home, and there was a shortcut that she had taken many times before, and she took it alone. It was dark, um, so it wasn't really that big of a deal to her. I am personally a scaredy cat and probably couldn't do it myself, <laughs> but um, this night was different, and Donna never made it back home, and Donna was pretty reliable. So when her mom told her to come home, her mom knew that she would come right away, but she didn't come back. And her mom um, reported it to the Newport Police Department. 
The search ramped up when Donna's brother reported that when she left the restaurant, he witnessed a man following her into the woods. And when police found out about that, they set up roadblocks to search for Donna. So it sounded like at first, I mean, I think all police departments immediately assume that when it's a teenage girl, there's a good chance she may have ran away from home. I keep on finding that in everything that we research. And I think when they got that one piece of information, they realized that it was probably a little bit more serious than what they probably thought it was originally. Right. Yeah. Um, And I wonder like how old her brother was at the time. Like, did he think about going, Hey, there's a dude following my sister or, you know, I wonder what he was thinking at the time too, especially when she didn't show up to home. And I wonder if he thought really nothing of it. Cause you know, people took the shortcut and yeah, yeah. then when she became missing, he thought, Oh gosh, you know, I did see somebody and probably didn't think anything of it at the time. Yeah, that's true. Well, the search for Donna ended that next afternoon when her body was found in a drainage ditch just across from her home. Mm. Um, And they determined that her cause of death was strangulation. As a mama, I can't imagine my child dead in a ditch across from my house. No, that's that's horrible. I mean, we we joke with our kids, you know, when they of course I don't know if your parents did this, but they did mine did with me when you know you would be late coming in from curfew or whatever, and they'll be like, Yeah, I thought you were dead in a ditch. You know, they say all that, but I mean, to some parents, this has actually happened, and that's yeah. why they're so fearful of it. It's a possibility, it's so sad. It really is. And what's even sadder is what happened afterwards because in the weeks after her murder, more than a hundred people were questioned. And over the years, law enforcement has followed up on any leads, but they still don't have answers. And that's what's so sad. I mean, Donna's mom went to her grave without knowing what happened to her baby girl. That kills me. That kills me that she, she passed away before you know, any of this stuff could, could be done to to help try to find the killer. I know. And I think that technology is, or we're catching up. Well, how do you say it? Technology is um, getting better. So everything's getting caught up because back in 1975, I mean, there wasn't DNA evidence and there wasn't any way to really get down to the bottom of who had actually done things. So hopefully with where technology is today, um, answers will start to come and we'll be able to figure it out. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we had the um, opportunity to talk to a couple of Donna's family members, her cousin, Beverly Boston, and her daughter, Stephanie. And they talked with us about how they have just been relentlessly pursuing answers in her case. They're they're not going to give up until something is done. And that was really interesting about Stephanie because she never really met Donna and the fact that she has such a drive to figure out answers on Donna's case. And really, I mean, it's a family member, a distant family member and somebody that she cares so deeply for. I mean, you can tell that and just hearing her voice and hearing how she talks about the case. And if it wasn't for Stephanie pushing I don't know where the case would be today. And I think that's just really a great thing that she's been such an advocate for finding answers in Donna's case. Absolutely. So let's jump into that interview. 
we've um, talked before, Stephanie, about um, how I came across um, your information, but just to bring everyone else up to speed, um, Amber and I um, have been really fortunate as part of the podcast team to have interaction with the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. He brought up Donna's case to us and said that it would be a fantastic case for us to cover because so many things are starting to happen. So I'm sure, as you guys already know, um, some of her DNA was um, submitted and it's actually now being processed. And if I'm not mistaken, it's NCIS who is working on that piece. And they're hoping to be able to get a profile put together um, really soon. So he thought that this might be a great case for us to cover just to bring Donna back into public light. A lot of people um, either are too young to remember or maybe don't even know about her story. Um, we both feel like we're true crime aficionados and we had never heard of her story before. So we just want um, everyone who listens and we actually have listenership even outside of North Carolina and for people just to hear about who she was and anything that you feel would be important to share with us. So I'm going to turn it over to Amber. Amber is going to start with our first question. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Amber. Okay. All right. Um, let's talk about uh, Donna. I like, I, we would like to hear more about who she was, um, like what her personality was, what was she interested in, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, she was, I call her a spitfire. You know, if she got mad enough, she had a mouth on her. Uh, she was a tomboy. She never wore dresses. Except one time. Uh, she wore one dress to a dance that I went with her. And never again, and was buried in that dress. Oh. So, and she loved horses. Um, she loved the beach. She loved going out on the boat. Things like that. Sounds like she was really active and always enjoyed having a good time. Yeah, a, a good. I knew her to have like her good times were innocent good times, you know watching movies, going bowling, um, things like that. She was, she was a good girl. And she was just a baby. I mean, if you're thinking about how old she was, I mean, if you think about um, both Amber and I have girls and we're just starting to jump on that preteen train, which we're both kind of scared of, to be honest with you. But I mean, it sounds like she was doing anything that a normal teenager mm -hmm. would be doing just enjoying life around her going and enjoying nature having fun with her friends so very normal childhood yeah so I would love to hear about your favorite memory of Donna that dance what happened at that dance uh she she actually put on makeup she actually I believe had curls in her hair she actually danced a slow dance um, never saw her in a dress before. She just was beautiful. What did the dress look like? It was burgundy. It was velvet. And it had a high collar like it was Victorian. It, it went to the ground. It was full length. Oh, wow. So this was a really formal dance. I don't think it was meant to be that formal. But that was probably just the only dress the girl had, you know, <laughs> formal wise, you know. Mm -hmm. She really didn't like dresses. Maybe tell them what she normally wore so you can oh, see the main difference. She normally wore a button-up shirt tied around her waist, cut-off jeans, or a T-shirt, old tennis shoes, and never put her hair up. She had straight, long, blonde hair, but that's just the way she was. 
And she wore a bandana. Yeah. Always had mm-hmm. like a bandana around her hair. That reminds me of pictures that I would used to see of my mom in the 1970s, like the type of stuff she would wear. Yeah. That's what she wore. Mm-hmm. Sounds like my kind of girl. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you guys ever go to um, that grill with Donna that she no. frequented a lot? I had moved away for a short time. I uh, had gotten married. I got married quite young. And uh, I was gone maybe a year, somewhere around that. Never, I never even knew about the grill till I came back home. You know, I never mm-hmm. even knew about it. Never, never went there. She told me about it, but she never took me there. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you know um, why it was such a popular hangout? Like why um, all the kids in the area clamored to it? It was like a, they had a side where you could eat, but then they had a side where they had pool tables, game tables. That's why. Stuff like that. And then so it was just was, a great place to hang out. Yeah. And there was a trailer park behind it. So probably most of that hung out there. So um, I know that you had never been to Grice's before, but did Donna feel pretty safe in her area from everything we can tell? It was a very small town and there just wasn't a lot to be concerned about. Um, was there any concern about safety? Uh, I don't know. Sometimes she talked like she was a little bit scared sometimes to come through there, you know, cause it's nighttime and this, this is, woods and there's just this little path that people had walked so much mm-hmm. everything on the ground had died so like you're in darkness and then you come through and there's this clearing like and then more woods and you had to pass through them to actually cross the ditch to get to her house i would have but, been terrified <laughs> but uh, i'm a I big scaredy too. cat <laughs> especially at night <laughs> yeah it seems like it was probably just like the quickest route. Okay, so easiest way to avoid yeah. getting in trouble oh, yeah. for being late. The Grice's Grill was directly across the highway from the path, and the path led right to her home. Mm-hmm. Okay. So instead of having to go across the street and down the road and turn several blocks, she could just go straight through the path. Yeah, she I- frequently used the path. I grew up um, near Air Force Base. Um, my dad was in the Air Force, so um, he was always nervous about airmen and always kind of warned me, like, stay away from the airmen, don't talk to them, don't interact with them. Did airmen go to the grill that you're aware of? Oh, or yeah. Marines okay. did. Mm. Okay. Yeah, so Newport is um, actually right next door to Cherry Point Base, so it's a very well military town. Um, so I, I guess they did. <laughs> yeah, it was, they, they hung out there too. And then again, some of them might've lived in that trailer park behind Grice's. So yeah, she had, you know, I guess I wouldn't say access. She would have run into some, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, did the family, did you, did you guys expect her case to be solved fairly quickly? when it when it all happened i think they were hoping it would you know till you know nothing ever started happening you know so it was like dragging on and dragging on and dragging on and 
then the local police got out of it. They didn't want anything to do with the case. And, you know, the only ones that's ever done anything, to my knowledge, is the SBI. Hmm. When did the SBI get involved? I was told right away. But yeah, everything that we've come across, especially with my research, um, it was the, the Carter County Sheriff's Department, um, the Newport Police Department, the NCIS, uh, because her father was military, mm-hmm. and then the SBI were all involved at the beginning, um, is what, you know, I've found myself. Yeah, we um, know the SBI um, becomes involved once they're invited to become involved. So I imagine with limited resources, they are probably invited to get involved really quickly because I know from everything we've researched that the resources, they just don't have the same um, skills and techniques to be able to solve a crime like this. Um, So it makes sense that they were involved. Even today, Newport doesn't have, I mean, it's a very small town, so they would probably call in if something like that was to happen again. So I can only imagine back then, they probably really didn't have any resources. And, no. um, you know, but it seems like they kind of, um, they tried to pinpoint her mom at one time. And when that didn't go the direction that they were looking, um, they that's probably when they kind of just passed over the case. And that was impossible. Her mother was one of the sweetest people you'd ever know. Never spanked that child. Certainly would have not strangled her. You know, her mother her mother died a while back of cancer. Never mm. find, you know, of course the case has not been solved, but no, her mother Yeah, she ended up taking lie detector tests. Two of them, I think? Was yeah, I, I was actually babysitting the younger kids when she took the one. Yeah. She actually had to take a lie detector test. Can you even imagine? That is horrific that she would even have to go through that after having to go through so much. That's so sad. I'm sorry that she had to deal with that. Oh, wow. And that she passed with no resolution. That that kills me, too. Well, best thing is she probably knows now. So that's that's what I say. Yeah, she knows now. Yeah. Yeah, she's 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 up there with Donna. She knows everything. I just wish that we did. (laughs) I think we will soon. I mean, I have a lot of faith that we're going to be able to, well, not we, because I'm not part of it, but the SBI and CIS are going to be able to figure this out and get a good profile and finally bring someone to justice. So I'm very hopeful. Yeah, we've we've been kind of pushing for it the last couple of years, you know, really trying to you know, get her face out there, get her name out there and just try to get some help because it just seemed like every direction we turned, she was a cold case. And it was just like, we're just going to leave her in the dust, you know, and her file, I meant not her. <laughs> she has never been forgotten. She knows her through me. Yeah. So Donna, um, Donna passed away um, in 75 and I wasn't born until 78. But for me, it's like, she's always been a part of my life because my mom always talked about her. We always celebrated her birthday and I've always known. So to me, it's like, it's not somebody I never met. I, you know, the one picture that we have of her, I've seen since I was a little girl. So um, for other people, it might be, you know, I didn't know her and we just know the story. But for me, my mom always made her part of our life growing up. So 
that's why I'm so passionate about, you know, getting justice, not just for her, but for the family. We're only 10 months apart. Oh, wow. For two months out of the year, we're the same age. <laughs> so she would be 63 in October or 64. I don't know. It depends on which one of you is older. I'm, I'm older. So you'll be 64 in December. So, 63. so she'll turn 63 in October. For two months, we're the same age. Wow. Um, you guys mentioned like lack of resources with the police department and things like that, you know, back in, in 75. Do you, is that one of the main reasons that you guys feel that her case has not been solved? Yes, lack of resources. And I think uh, a lot of people in the area know more than they're telling. Mm-hmm. I think people are just not talking and telling the truth. Yeah, in a small town like this, you know, it's 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 hard to believe that nobody knows something you know um i i think my opinion through everything is that she knew who they were i don't think it was a stranger i don't think it was somebody she just came across that had never seen i think it was probably more than one and um and that's just you know from bits and pieces of stuff that, you know, I've researched and talked to people and stuff like that um, early on, you know, trying to get things going. And it just doesn't make sense that it was a stranger. So, And, um, and for the crime scene at the beginning was really, really messed up. The local police came in, saw her, walked all over the place, walked on cigarette butts, walked on, there was a beer can, um, they just botched, what do you call it? Botched. botched it from the beginning, I think. Mm. I'm amazed that they didn't do anything to clear the crime scene and close it off. You would think that even back in 1975, they would know to do that. That's just surprising to me that they wouldn't do something to protect the scene. I just think it was lack of knowledge. You know, it's not a high crime area. Even today, it's not a high crime um, victim area. In, in the sense of, you know, people just don't get murdered a lot in this small town. Um, so I think it was just lack of knowing what to do. You know, uh, you find a young girl or you get called out, you know, to a young body and they probably just, you know, didn't know that they should tape it off or didn't know to not trample all over something or, you know. And of course, you know, we have other speculations, but we don't want to really go into that. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> so I think it's, it's interesting, though, because you think it's a group of people and everything that we've come across in research, it, it seems to point to it being just one person. So it's just interesting that you have a different theory um, and you probably know a lot more than what is you know, obviously available to us being published and everything. Um, Especially that because we um our our takeaway was it was probably someone who was transient to the area and it was a crime of opportunity. I think that kind of got the opposite. <laughs> it's a crime of oh maybe you know maybe it just happened but maybe they planned it. I think it was a group. I don't think it was one person. 
I honestly think that she walked up on something that she should not have seen. And um, and it ultimately, the decision was made to take her life, to keep her mouth shut. That's That's just my opinion because... You know, she wasn't, um, she wasn't victimized. She wasn't, um, you know, it's just, it's just the way everything happened. It just, nobody would have known about that trail if they're not from the area. Who would have known, you know, I mean, locals, people that took that trail knew about that trail. And that, that is just one of the things that makes me think that it just, it couldn't have been somebody that wasn't from the area mm-hmm. unless they knew some of the people in the crowd and they have taken that trail with other people, you know, like they had friended people that maybe took that trail. Um, and that's just, you know, that's just how I feel. <laughs> well, um, and some of the reports that we read, Donna's brother had been, um, he had said that he had saw a man or a shadowy figure following Donna. Do you think that it, that has any credence or um, anything that might be connected? We've heard several different stories. Her brother did say that um, this guy, tall, long, dark hair, was following her across the street. But then we've had other people tell us that she was alone. That they watched Mm -hmm. her leave. We had somebody else say that she left with two guys and her brother. Um, so that that story is not really consistent. Like we really honestly don't know. Um, he is no longer um, alive either to even, you know, talk to him now. Um, so it's just real unfortunate that um, that whatever he may or may not have known, we're just never going to know his view on that. And he was young. How old was he? How old was David? David was uh, younger than Donna. So if Donna was 15, David was probably in the area of 13. So just a little guy. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we really, you know, we can't, we can't say if what he saw, I mean, I don't know why he would lie about it, but then again, you know. Oh, when you're 13, you sometimes see things that you may not, or you remember things that may not be exactly the way it was because, I mean, he was traumatized. I mean, his sister passed away. I mean, I can't imagine what went on in his mind and how traumatized he was knowing that he was there. And probably, I mean, I have a 14 year old probably thinking, gosh, I could have protected my sister. I mean, I can't imagine what, what went through his mind and probably the guilt and the trauma that he had to deal with. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing is there's just so many unanswered questions that are answered, if that makes sense. It's like the people that are willing to talk, their stories or their their um, memory doesn't coincide with somebody that was there at the same exact time, you know? So it's like we really, and a lot of years have passed, so mm-hmm. not knowing, you know, if their memories are valid or not is really difficult to he was traumatized. He was traumatized enough to where he slept with crescent wrenches and other tools, and he slept with his light on. And so he was traumatized. Whatever he knew or saw or heard, he was traumatized. That's his heart. Oh, baby. Mm. 
Yeah, which would lead you to think, does he did, did he know more? And he was scared. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So we really, in a sense, we don't know how horrific her story really is. You know, did her siblings witness something? Did they not? Did you know? It's really hard to get factual information and know what happened. Well, I think the good news out of this is there was DNA that was saved. I mean, at least they needed to do that back in 1975. And it sounds like they have something to work with, which leads to the next question, which I'll let Amber ask. Oh, <laughs> you um, do you guys believe that the recent DNA, you know, technologies that we've got going on um, will help solve her case? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes, definitely. Yeah. And I think that's another um, issue from her not being solved long ago is because technology just wasn't it wasn't where it is now. And if they have DNA, enough DNA to build a profile, then. Absolutely. You know, you've got the genealogists that can, you know, do a profile just from that. Like there's just we've really become advanced enough to where I feel like that's probably going to be the only way <laughs> at this point that well, we since know. We started um, working on Donna's case. I've been really, I don't know, hypersensitive to news and just seeing all over the United States where all of these super cold cases have been solved. And it's so exciting. And it just gives me so much hope for all the ones that we have here in North Carolina that we're going to start to see justice being served or at the very least have answers because some of them are so old that people aren't around anymore to convict. So I know that um, when we talked with Nate, he felt really good about this case as far as being able to come up with answers and solve it, which gives me a lot of hope. Um, Like I said in the beginning of the call, he is so innovative and some of the ideas that he's came up with, um, you'll hear on the podcast, but when we talked with him, there are all these different universities in North Carolina. Did he say it was six, Amber? Six different ones? And so they have a class called Cold Case. And so they're given a real North Carolina cold case. The students are, and they spend the entire Entire semester coming up with ideas and leads that are then given back to an SBI agent for them to follow up on. So he knows that there's some way that some of these cases are going to be solved. And then another thing he's doing is there is a doctor, he called it a bone doctor. I don't know what the appropriate term is. Do you remember Amber? Yeah, she's a forensic anthropologist. A forensic, see Amber has the details, <laughs> a forensic anthropologist. And what she's doing is she's taking um, bones of um, unidentified um, people and she's been able to solve, did he say it was six or eight different? Something cases? like that. I think it was up yeah. to eight. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's so cool that we're now doing all these amazing things. So it gives me a lot of hope in knowing that we're going to get answers in a bunch of different cases. So um, I know it's been 25 years or more than 25 years. I'd like to think I'm 25. I was born in 1976. Um, It's been 45 years. (laughs) And um, I do think that it's been a long wait, but hopefully in the next year or two, we'll be able to figure out what happened to Donna. So my last question I have for the two of you is what can our listeners do to help you get justice for Donna? They can come forward. If they know something, come forward. Because everybody, everybody in this area knew that girl. Somebody knows something. Come forward and tell the truth for once and for all. Yeah, I think just um, sharing, you know, sharing 
her story, even though it's a tragic one, and um, getting to know some of who she was. Hopefully, you know, it'll be shared enough to where either there's a guilty conscience or somebody that knows something will come forward. I mean, even if the person that took her life or the person's, if they're no longer with us, at least we'll have closure and knowing who did it. And that's the biggest thing, I think, is just getting that closure where it's not, you know, who did it, why? Well, we'll probably never know why, but, um, you know, and, and just getting her story out there, I think, is just going to, I mean, I've been plastering her face everywhere. <laughs> Because I'm like, you know, you've gone all these years without seeing her and now you're going to look at her face and social media helped me do that. And this picture that is floating around of her in the little blue shirt Mm -hmm. is the only picture except for one we found of her as a little baby sitting at the table um, eating ice cream at a birthday party. Hmm. That picture is the picture my mom carried. She gave me that picture in school. That was her school picture, and I've carried it. I still have it. Her sophomore picture of the year that she mm-hmm. that she her and life that's was the taken. only picture that exists that we know of. Oh my! Wow. Yeah. Any other pictures um, went with her her family after she passed away? You know, Donna's siblings and stuff. We didn't um, get any of her other photos. So. Yeah. So that's the only one. It's. <laughs> It's kind of like a treasure because if something happens to that, who's going to, you know, have her picture? Uh, nothing's going to happen to it. It's put away. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all over social media now. Yeah, yeah. I was getting ready to say it's all over the internet, so you don't have to worry <laughs> about anyone losing it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely yeah. there. I, that was the first thing I did was push her picture out everywhere, and I just said, you know what? If they're on social media, or if they're still alive, somehow her face is going to get to them. And maybe they have a conscience, maybe they don't, but maybe somebody that knows something or knows a secret or something will finally say, you know what, it's been a long enough time, I'm going to come forward. Not a lot of hope there, but, you know, (laughs) I mean, I I was just saying to my mom beforehand, I said, you know, if you kept a secret this long, it's probably easier to keep it than it is to tell it. So, you know, but. I think the older people get, the more they want to shed the baggage they're carrying with them. So maybe somebody feels like it's time to bring this forward and share what happens. Yeah. Well, I meant verbally, like it's hard to actually speak it, you know, after you've not spoke it for so long, but absolutely. I, I really hope, and I, I really appreciate you guys reaching out and really wanting to help with Donna because for the longest time there was nobody and there was no social media and there was no way to really get her story out there and the police department wouldn't talk to us nobody would you know talk to us so we really felt like it was just something that wasn't going to go anywhere but um we're just not giving up and with technology and with people like you coming out and just saying hey we want to you know help you at least humanize this girl and you know, not make it about just her life and her tragic ending, but, you know, who she was, you know, she wasn't even big, was she, mom? She was like, if she was 90 pounds, I'd be shocked. How tall was she? (laughs) About five foot. Yeah. So she was a tiny girl. Maybe five foot. Yeah. She was real tiny. Yeah. 
So, you know, you picture that little blonde headed girl running around just enjoying life and then somebody took it. So mm. hopefully. Well, she was. She was a very happy girl. Very happy. You know. You getting teary eyed. No, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. She was a very, very happy girl. They were first cousins. So they kind of grew up together. Mom, you stayed the nights with her. And oh, yeah. Almost every weekend. That's how I know what she did. So how this happened, I don't know. Because she would have never, you know, she went, well, she, I didn't even know about the path until I came down and, you know, she showed me and she told me. And I didn't know about Bryce's till she told me. The, the life I shared with her was playing records and going to the, you know, movie theater and going to yard sales. Oh, my goodness. Her mama liked yard sales. That's what she liked. So this side, you know, going, I don't know anything really about it. It's out of her character. Yes. What in the character I knew. Was it, was she with friends when she was there? Um, was it like a group of people that she hung out with? That- yeah, they, they all knew each other. Okay. I guess she met them over there. I, I, she never took me. She never took me over there. Must have been one of those new things for her. Like, you know, just part of growing up and exploring yeah. new things. Well, she had a, you know, she had a boyfriend at that time and, you know, that may have been a place that he hung out at and, you know, she just kind of got caught up in going over there with him and their mutual friends. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. How long has she been dating the boyfriend? Um, I, I have no idea. From, from talking to mutual friends, I don't think it had been that long, maybe a few months. Okay. So it wasn't like a, a long-term relationship from what I gathered through information. Um, but he was well-known in the community from what I understand. But he isn't a suspect. Isn't that right? Uh, as far as I know, he was never a suspect. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. It sounds like she was just growing up a little bit and trying out some new things. Being a teenager, you know. Yep. And, you know, with um, mom not being there, I mean, she probably had to find an outlet somewhere, you know, with mm-hmm. new friends and people she was going to school with. And so just it wasn't very long into her sophomore year. Or was it the end of the sophomore year? No, it was summertime, right? She was yeah. going to be a junior. She, she died June. Yeah. So 16. school was probably out. Yeah. Yeah. Probably beginning of summer. Yeah. So she would have been a junior going back into high school. We really appreciate both of you taking the time this Sunday afternoon to speak with us. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. We appreciate that. Thank you both so much. I hope you have a good rest of your Sunday evening. You You too. too. (laughs) Thank you. So a couple of things from that interview I wanted to point out as corrections. Um, Number one, the number of schools with the cold case program is actually three. I um, mistake that number. Um, 
So hopefully that number will start to climb. Um, one thing that Nate said during our interview was he keeps on having schools reach out to him wanting to do the program and it could practically be a full-time job. So I do think that number will continue to grow and especially as people have interest in taking those classes. And the other thing I wanted to clarify is they do have a CODIS profile on whoever um, did murder Donna. It's just right now they're trying to run it against all of the different offenders who have um, a profile in the system. Hopefully they find somebody who does, but if not, they do have the DNA evidence um, whenever that person does turn up. And also on, uh, we wanted to let you guys know on May 22nd of 2022, a um, billboard was put up in Newport by the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. They're uh, continuing to work with the NCIS to find and follow up on any new leads in the case. And hopefully someone will step forward with information that will help close this case. Goodness, I hope so. It's been so long and they deserve answers and hopefully time has softened some people and they want to help bring closure to this family. Absolutely. So Donna Marie Emmel was just 15 years old when she was murdered in 1975. Her mother, Emily, was absolutely devastated by her death and she never really recovered from it. And she went to her grave in 1995 without having the answers that she so desperately wanted. Her remaining family members continue to hope that this case will be solved. And justice is 47 years overdue. So if anyone has any information about Donna's murder, please contact the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigations at 919-662-4500. Well, that's all we have for you all today. Um, we are actually going to be taking an extended summer break. So we will be back in the fall with some new episodes. See you guys then. Thank you. Bye. True Crime Mamas podcast is a production of TCM Productions. Theme music created by the talented Brian Anderson. Cover art created by design extraordinaire Marley Soden. Studio sponsored by McDowell Heating and Air. Keep your home comfortable all year with McDowell Heating and Air. True Crime Mamas podcast is property of True Crime Mamas LLC. Support True Crime Mamas by following us on Instagram and Facebook and check out our website at truecrimemamaspodcast.com for sources and more.